So good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us at the New Jersey Smart CEO Think Tank discussion on adapting your operation model for future growth, hosted in partnership with Norris McLaughlin and Marcus. Now, I'm Bob Gabrielski. I'm a member of Norris McLaughlin and Marcus, and I'll be serving as the moderator for today's discussion. And joining me in today's program is a group of CEOs based in New Jersey, along with my partner, Salil Johnny. So let's begin the meeting of our panelists uh, who come from a wide range of businesses. And we'll go around the table and have each person introduce themselves, uh, give their title, and say what company uh, they're representing. So Les, maybe it makes sense to start with you. Definitely. <clears throat> I'm Les Williams. I'm from Exeter Networks. And I serve as the Chief Marketing Officer and President. And uh, X Networks is a company that provides managed services for technology management. We do design, implementation, and ongoing management of technology services for medium-sized companies, um, carriers, as well as VARs. Thanks, Wes. Karen? I'm Karen Kopp. They know me as the chief door opener at Kopp Consulting. We help our clients get in the door with the prospects that they need to meet for that initial meeting. This is the kind of work that most salespeople hate, and the business owners hate it too, and we figure out who the right people are in companies. We open up the lines of communication and get the first meeting, usually at high levels, when our clients want to get in to see the C-suite, SVP, VP, director level. We help. Karen, I think your reputation precedes yourself, and uh, Thank you. thanks for coming. Mm -hmm. So I guess we get Dave up next. Uh, David Buckwald, I'm one of the five founding partners of uh, Atlas Advisory Group, which is a comprehensive, holistic uh, financial planning firm uh, made up of a team of specialists from wealth management to life insurance, benefits, uh, social security, uh, wealth management. So we have a team of specialists uh, that uh, support our team members and our clients. Thanks, Dave. Sunil? Good morning. Uh, my name is Sunil Gutka. I'm founder and owner of MedicallyEquipped.com. We're the nation's uh, largest medical apparel and equipment provider to individual health practitioners as well as clinics and uh, hospitals. We ship uh, all over the world. We have clients in, in about 36 countries, um, ranging from, again, uh, a physician all the way up to entire uh, hospital chains. Would your company also provide a durable medical equipment, or is it? We, we stay out of the DME okay. uh, uh, field. Uh, we primarily focus on embroidered and screen printed scrubs, lab coats, and handheld equipment. So stethoscopes, blood pressure kits, uh, operational uh, equipment, scalpels, and things like that. Great. Thanks, Neil. Sure. So, Brian. Hi, I'm uh, Brian Sullivan. I'm the founder and president of Sullivan Engineering. Our niche market is building envelope restoration, which is essentially restoration of anything on the outside of a building, facades, roofs, windows, sidewalks, parking garages. Uh, that's our niche market. Our objective is to assist, help, and empower others improve their quality of life. So I'd like to learn a little bit more about that as we go along, because to get a sense about the envelope engineering concept, but we'll come back to that a little bit as well. Great. Thank you. Barry. Uh, my name is uh, Barry Skolci. I'm the CEO of Whitman. We are a mid-sized environmental engineering and energy company located in central New Jersey. Uh, we uh, serve clients up and down the East Coast. We're licensed in 20 states across the country. Uh, we focus uh, both on the private sector and public sector. Thanks, Barry. And, and as I mentioned, my partner, Salil Johnny, is here. 
and Ed Wilkin, one of the founders of Wilkin and Gutton Plan. So in addition to me, Bob G, being the moderator, I think we'll see input and other ideas that come both from Salil and Ed as we go through the program today. So for those of you listening on the podcast, we provided our panelists in advance with a list of some of the topics that we hope to cover today. So each of them comes to the panel in a roundtable discussion today with some of their considered input from their experiences in their various different businesses and industries. So, so to kick off, uh, let's take a look at what the first topic is. Uh, basically, what we're trying to find out and get a discussion started is, how do you know when it's time to scale the operations of your business? And in, in the context of that, what kind of metrics do each of you watch for and look for in beginning to make decisions about how you might consider uh, scaling up or what kind of assets that you might need to do that? So yeah, to toss that out to, to the panelists, if anybody has any ideas, who, who wants to just chime in and give some of their initial thoughts. Uh, this is Barry Skolji from, from Whitman. I'll, I'll kick it off. Thanks, Barry. Uh, from, from our company, we're a service company, and um, there's really uh, two major uh, items that we focus on when, when we look at markets. First of all is internal. Uh, our business model is interesting in that there are um, aspects of our business that lead the economy and there are aspects that lag the economy. So we're on both ends and so what we can do at times is see that for instance the engineering service they lead the economy and they're, they're ahead of the curve and we can get a sense that if we see activity starting up or activity occurring uh, that there's going to be a growth occurring in our business and then we can not only experience it on the engineering side, but then we can also plan on the environmental side, which is usually a year or two behind the economy. As an example, um, everybody knows 2008 and what occurred. On the environmental side, we didn't really feel any um, negative, uh, negative aspects to our business until 2010, 2011. So it gave us time to plan. Uh, the other thing we do is we go out and ac access the market. And what I mean by that is we speak to our clients we listen to them. We see what they're doing. Are they active? Are they not active? We, we uh, speak to our competitors quite often as well and see what they're uh, experiencing. So it's both an internal and external evaluation. So how would you go about getting in touch with your competitors? I mean, is it through trade organizations? or? Um, it, it, it may have started that way, but frankly, at this point, it's all personal relationships. Uh, again, being a service company, um, while uh, the Internet and electronic communication is key, in my business, nothing's going to replace face-to-face -face contact and a handshake. So we, we spend a lot of time um, interacting with our competitors. We, we, we look to team with our competitors. We have discussions with them. We don't give away the secret sauce or all the trade secrets, but, but we, we have dialogue. And a lot of it's just being in the business for 30 years and um, knowing these people and them knowing me. So thanks, Barry. It's, it's Bob G. again. And I think in the context of, of what... Barry might have just said. I mean, Brian is also in the engineering sector, and does does Barry's thought process or what those guys do is that similar to what you do in your business? Yeah, Bob, it's uh, actually very similar. Our uh, industry, what we our niche is also kind of on the lead of the construction industry because we're doing the design for many of the projects. Uh, so we can be uh, we have to really be in touch with our clients. Uh, similar to Barry, we have to be in touch with. Uh, our other people in the niche industry, uh, our colleagues that have other similar firms, kind of see what their feel is, what the pulse of the market is, 
we do try to keep a list of all of our open proposals, who we've been talking to, which what the interest level is from potential clients, potential projects, what their plans are for the next month, what their plans are for the next year, the next three years, uh, to see get a gauge for the uh, economy. So, so in both of Barry's case and, and also in Brian's case, I mean, you're talking about things that are really capital-intensive projects in nature. So you're, you're focusing on things that are, are going to be either somewhat in progress before you have any real economic change that might take place, and sometimes some of the trailing things may take place, for example, in some of the environmental things that Barry mentioned. Those projects may be underway, and perhaps because of state or federal regulatory issues, they need to be completed. So the fact that the economic sector may have changed a little bit uh, that may not necessarily have an impact on those projects that are already in place. So those type of things, I think, are hard construction-related types of things. Now, some of the other people on the panel are a little bit more in the consulting and perhaps service industries. And I don't know, does it, do any of you have any ideas about what you might do that's a little bit different than what might be going on in, in those hard construction-type areas? Uh, okay. Uh, this is Les, Les Williams. Um, I'll chime in. I think... Um, when you look at it, um, to Barry's point earlier, you mentioned both um, the market, external and internal. And I think it always comes down to that, and it's similar for us in the service business. We're in the technology management business, and what we see is that for every business, um, technology is a competitive advantage for them. If you look at the global economy now, they have what they call the fan stocks. That's Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. And then when you look at the disruptive technology, you look at the likes of Uber and them, who have used technology to gain competitive advantage in the market. So in our space, when we look at it, we do look at what the market is doing. We also look from an internal standpoint at our operations, as well as our product sets, and to see how we scale to meet the market demand and take opportunities, um, take advantage of those opportunities. Um, from a market-facing um, standpoint, um, what we've seen and what I think is common in the technology space is the programmability of things. So um, people are not only looking at the hard um, ways of doing um, technology implementations anymore. There is a lot, lot of the software part of it. So as a technology um, service provider, we design, we implement, we do the ongoing management. We have to constantly look at the tools that we use in-house to make that happen and making sure we are at the cutting edge and being able to manage the technology of now and the technology of the future. So um, we, we have metrics internally that we use to look at that, to see are we giving the best visibility into the customer's environment? What are the new technologies and what are the metrics that these people care about that's going to translate to them in terms of business um, sense? How do they cut through the noise of emerging technology and be able to take that and um, get business value out of it? And what role do we play in that? We look at constantly, we benchmark on a yearly basis and we benchmark on a quarterly basis and see the tools that we use to monitor their networks before. Is it still sufficient? The tools that are needed to manage the Internet of Things, does it give all the metrics that are needed to take the right action when it's needed by them? And if we find a gap in there, we'll try to solve for it by either building the capability ourselves or acquiring that technology or partnering to get that. So that's one area where we scale by way of the tools and mm -hmm. products and the operation. And then we look at our operational structure internally. Are we structured 
to deliver to the customer. We promise 100% uptime, 100% service availability, 99%. And this, you know, those metrics are really key when it comes to technology and um, telecommunications and everything. So we look at how we're performing against those. And if we begin to see a little bit of a stress in the system, we know that, okay, now we need to add an extra engineer here. We need to add an extra IT person there. We need to add a um, senior level consultant there. We need to acquire somebody that can talk about IoT and all that stuff. So we look at that structure as well to see do we have um, to have a business unit geared towards that and things like that. And um, coming full circle back to the market itself, um, you look at where technology is headed and what the market is looking for. Um, Barry and uh, Brian both mentioned customer feedback, talking <coughs> to our customers constantly, seeing what they want, what they're planning to do, and see is this a capability that we have as a business. Now, not just on the operational tools, but just as a business. So, for instance, managed services, we had the network management, the IT infrastructure management, but then um, now there is a software and the programmability. Not too many managed services providers have an application development arm. So when you take the application development, you mesh it into your operation. Mm -hmm. It means you have to build a separate business unit for it. So in our instance, in the last few years, we've scaled and built an application development service unit that works closely with our managed services. And that's lending a lot of um, uh, leverage for us when we talk to businesses because now we can <coughs> not only do the managed services, but also be able to do bespoke um, applications for them that takes advantage of modern technology and lend that competitive edge to them so they in turn can win. So that's um, an area we looked at it. It's a little different than what we do. There is close adjacencies there, and you know it's close to our core, so we have to be very streamlined in what parts of it. So you don't come to us for just any e-commerce site, but when it comes to doing scripts to manage the network, we have that capability that we build. So that's another area where we scale by way of the business units that we go after. So it's, it's Bob G, your friendly moderator again. So Les, before we get to Karen Kopp's input, which I know she has, to give some context to what you've said, what types of clients would you be, or what types of businesses would you be looking to deliver those services to? Well, we have um, different channels, really, if you were to call it that. We do have um, the enterprise customers that um, you know benefit from that, and in that regard, most of them have these scaled-up operations, and they are looking for people to keep eyes on their network 24 by 7, 365. So rather than invest on those little um, minutiae and somebody just watching the networks and fixing issues and everything, they can outsource that and everything. So there is that, and in some instances, they can have identifiable network operation um, center workers that we provide within a facility that they can identify by any massive way there so it becomes an extension of the operation. So there is that enterprise that does some of that. Then you have the medium-sized businesses that wants to just outsource it all because it's really a distraction. And when you have this plethora of um, different technologies and everybody trying to cut through the noise and make sense out of it, it is really challenging for them. So they, in that regard, outsource everything to us, and we manage it. And then you have um, the traditional <coughs> telecommunications carriers, um, the telcos, like um, CenturyLink is one of our biggest customers, and we partner with a lot of other tier one providers of that nature, where they focus more on delivering the network services, and those um, break fix, the deployments and the field dispatch and all that, 
they can outsource to um, a managed services provider who does that and watches the network for um, the customer. And then, so they are more of a channel for us. They are like a, uh, and then we do um, the value added reseller as well. And um, when you look at managed services, it does cut across the spectrum. Sometimes it becomes to, to us as to what is the value that you want and can we meet it. And we are happy to turn people away if we feel that it's not going to be um, beneficial for them. But um, yeah, um, we do retail um, value added resellers, um, telcos, and uh, enterprise and medium sized companies mostly. Great. Thanks, Les. Karen, what do you think? That was really interesting. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so this is Karen Kopp from Kopp Consulting, and uh, scaling is a is a very big deal for us. I, everybody sitting at this table wouldn't be here if we weren't experiencing some big growth. Our company this past year we grew 58 percent on top of the year before, which was 81 percent, and that's a lot of growth. And so it's uh, like changing the wheels on the moving bus and uh, making sure that uh, we're in alignment with our philosophy, which is we'll grow as much as we can without sacrificing quality, sanity, or health for anyone. And so how do we do that? We keep our eye on what's happening in the market, as some of the other people have said, a specific eye on what's happening with our new client acquisition. As our new client acquisition increases, what's causing that specifically? So we're looking to, to travel back and say, okay, we can identify these are the three reasons why our new client acquisition grew in these three months. Uh, for example, and, and this goes back several years, but uh, Vern Harnish, who wrote Scaling Up, uh, at one point published something that I wrote and the phone was ringing off the hook, and we had a huge jump in new client acquisition at that time. So when we analyzed that, what we felt is that if that's going to continue to happen, which we hope it was, and we're, we're taking deliberate steps to have content that we put out about new business development and acquiring new client out in the market to keep that level high, we knew that we needed to be ahead of that trend and therefore have people who were already vetted interviewed uh, for our door openers because it's not easy to find somebody who's incredibly uh, intuitively successful at getting in the door and so aside from the team I already have I knew I needed a bench so we implemented this bench philosophy years ago to have a bench of people who weren't necessarily working for us at the time but they were identified everybody in our organization is referred in Everybody has a minimum of 10 years' experience in business development. Most of them have held decision-maker roles in corporations. They want to do the job of getting in the door. These people aren't easy to find. So we have, a, we have an ongoing recruiting process that keeps the bench, as of a couple years ago, five people on the bench at any one time. Now, in the last year, based on this uh, accelerated growth, we've increased that to 10 people on the bench at any one time. So it's okay if not all ten of them are available, but eight of them might be, six of them might be. And so then as we get uh, accelerated new client acquisition, we don't ever have to compromise on quality to be able to service these new clients. So that's one way we take a look at that. You asked the question, how do we know that when it's time to, to scale up? For us, it's bottlenecks. You know, we'll do that. At one point... Um, Years ago, I was doing all of the sales message development in the company. As the company grew, that was impossible. 
and there is a concerted effort over time to remove me from that process so I could be more of the thought leader uh, for our organization. I just came out with a new book, Biz Dev Done Right, which is on Amazon, and so I'm doing a lot of speaking in support of the book. How do we get the new clients onboarded where the first part of that is what is their sales language going to be when the door opener begins the campaign. Not everybody who's a great door opener is great at figuring out what the slam dunk message needs to be. And so uh, it took several years, three failed attempts, <laughs> and, but we kept at it. And, so, and now we have nailed that process where it's, uh, it's hiring the right person who is that unbelievable hunter, who is the unbelievable opener, who is also an unbelievable strategist who can lead a client through a strategy conversation. And so we have those people who are messaging strategists in our company. They're very hard to find, so the recruiting effort is, is a really big deal. But now we also have a training program for them to train them in our trademarked process of developing sales language. And we have uh, five of them now, which remove the bottleneck that we were experiencing in getting new clients onboarded. Removing that bottleneck ended up increasing our profitability, and it allowed us to reduce the fee associated with our clients getting onboarded. So it was just a win for everybody. You know, what we're looking for is where are these bottlenecks? Where do we anticipate the bottlenecks to be in six months, in nine months? Do we solve it with people, or do we solve it with process? Do we solve it with automation? So we're constantly looking ahead at this so that uh, we are on the upfront. I can't be involved in all that either, and neither should I be because it's not necessarily my area of expertise. So we have an expanded management team now, and as we look ahead, we, we may have one person who's responsible for onboarding clients. Now we have one person responsible for when the clients already are in-house, and then there will be a third management position probably in about uh, six months from, from now. So that's just a few of the ways that, that we're handling scaling. So, so a couple things, Karen. I mean, one is you, you mentioned a little bit that you've developed a bench strength in, mm -hmm. your, in your firm. And so one thought about that is, do you do that through keeping people on a consulting basis that are available when you need them, or do you begin to bring people in as employees? And what will relate to a topic further on is how do you attract that talent, and we'll discuss that a little bit further on as we go through today's discussions. But, but the first thought is how, you know, what's your balance between maybe consultants and employees? Well, it's interesting you asked that question because we just did a full conversion. Uh, which I fought for a long time. We had had an independent consultant model for many years. Uh, this is our 17th year in business now, and uh, we just did the conversion to, uh, I think everybody except one is now an employee. And um, so I don't anticipate that the uh, bench program is going to be any different. And the way we execute this bench program is it's through referral. Everybody who works in my company, it comes to us by referral only, no exceptions, so far anyway, but no exceptions. So I either know them personally and I have experience with their success, or someone I know knows them personally and has experience with their success. And I do believe that's one of the foundational success points of having a virtual company because there's a trust factor and because each one of the people who is referred in has a responsibility 
to the person who brought them in. It's a reputation mm -hmm. thing. And it, I do believe that is a really big deal. We have a constant recruiting process going on. Uh, it's active. It's not like all of a sudden I'll say, oh, gee, we only have one person on the bench. Uh, you know, can you go make some calls and see who else you know? We're on the upfront of that. So it's constant, mm -hmm. and somebody is watching it to make sure. And I, as I said, I really don't believe that it's going to change now with the employee model. One of the things that we offer extremely seasoned sellers is the ability to not work 60 hours and get paid for 40 and work for somebody in some big corporation who just doesn't understand sales. Here, they get to, it's a lifestyle. Uh, these very seasoned people can work 15 hours a week. They can work 30 hours a week if they want. They don't have to work full time. Sometimes there's a project and sometimes there isn't a project. And in this group of people who we know, they are desperate for this kind of lifestyle and appreciate the fact that they can live that and do things that they are so talented at. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you think about it in a corporation, what happens, they hire a business developer who's phenomenally good at getting in the door. That person gets in the door. Now what do they have to do? They have to manage the accounts. Well, these people hate that. Mm -hmm. They don't want to do that. They want to open doors. And this, in by them working for us, they get to do that for our clients and feel this sense of accomplishment. So we're not having an issue finding people who want to be part of it. That, that's not our problem. What our, our bigger issue is the, um, the making sure that our uh, interview process is so tight that we, aside from the referral, we still have a rigorous interview process and they still have to go through that. And then we need to maintain communication with those people who we're not ready to put to work right now because we're waiting for new clients to come on board, right? So it's that engagement process too and, and finding out, okay, this person didn't want to wait anymore, took a different assignment, that person does want to wait. They don't seem to care whether they come on as a consultant or an employee. They understand the employee model. The consultant model we had to explain to them. So I'm actually thinking that w moving forward as we're dealing with part-time employees, that this is actually going to be easier for us mm -hmm. than it was before. Thank you. Um, Can I just ask you a quick question on that? Yeah. So what, what's Dave, this is Dave. I'm Dave. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What, tell me, like, what's an ideal client look like to you? An ideal client for us is, is a, a company that on the very small end is maybe $5 million in sales, unless they're a funded startup or you know, they, they want to invest in business development. Um, on the high end, it's usually about $60 million in sales, where it's either the business owner is primarily responsible for business development and getting in the door and shouldn't be because their time is better spent elsewhere. I mean, getting or, in the door for various people that you'd want to meet. Yeah, so regardless of the industry, or do you focus on specific industries? Regardless of the industry, uh, it's really across industries. Most of the people come to us when it's difficult to get in the door, or they want to get in the door at high levels. Uh, so most of the time, a lot of times, it's the business owner who just needs to get in more of the right doors at high levels, and they need somebody who can represent them the way they would represent themselves. So it's a a person from my group who has the ability to have a, a senior level discussion with a senior level executive and then create a very warm introduction. Other times we support companies that have sales teams and their sellers may be good at getting in the door but they don't have time to keep the pipeline full anymore. 
because they're busy going on the meetings and closing sales. And you charge fees for that, flat fees for doors opened, or how does that work? We charge an hourly fee and then a fee for each meeting that occurs, which we charge the meeting fee only after the meeting occurs and only if our client likes it, and then a small piece of closed business. I'm assuming there's a lot of time spent initially understanding the other person's business before you're going to go out and so represent this, their business in the marketplace. It's a great question. This is the uh, messaging process I was talking about. And at one point in time, it took a month for us to get get out there and ready to have our person launch. And I kept saying to our team, we need to do it in two weeks. They kept saying to me, it's not possible, it's not possible. And so I said, okay, I'm setting the bar as a leader of the company. We want to get launched in two weeks. Tell me how we're going to do it. And we worked backwards. This is one of those scaling up moments. We worked backwards to figure out how to make that happen. So there's, there's a questionnaire and two two-hour strategy discussions led by one of these messaging strategists. And we don't have to know everything about a company. We have to know certain things. And those certain things have to be put in language that's relevant and compelling, and it creates urgency for the person who hears it. So that person is not going to want to put off a meeting. And what you say is critical in order to get that meeting now instead of three months from now. We're known for coming up with that sales language. <clears throat> and then from there, we develop the prospect list if our client doesn't have it. We also help them figure out who are, who are their best prospects. Sometimes people are going after too broad a group, and we'll help them to narrow the playing field and then to come up with a message that's meant just for these people. And then uh, we represent our clients as if we were members of our client's company. We take a, a email address and a voicemail box extension from the client's company so that in the mind of the prospect, uh, all the communication is coming from the company that we're representing. Makes it very seamless. So Dave, it's, it's Bob G, the moderator again. How, the, how does that make sense and how does that work with the kind of things that you would be doing and, and trying to identify where you think it's time to scale your business? Well, in terms of our business, I mean, I've been in the financial services, insurance, wealth management business for 27 years and 28 years, I guess now. Um, probably for the first 20, I was the guy that figured I'd go out, get all my designations, I'd be the smartest guy around and everybody would want to come to me for my wealth of knowledge. Uh, but about 10 years ago, we realized that that was probably not the most prudent um, way for our business to operate going forward. Um, so like what Barry mentioned earlier, uh, we, when you're dealing with clients' money, obviously it's a high level of trust. So we have you know regularly uh, meetings, regular meetings with our clients, and we're continually asking them, you know, what are we doing right? What do you like? Why do you do business with our firm? What can we do better? How could we improve? Um, and a lot of what I kept hearing, um, it's about a decade where my partners and I made a commitment to change the direction of the company. Um, and I ask clients this all the time, I say, you know, when's the last time um, that your attorney, your CPA, your wealth management guy, your insurance guy, your mortgage guy, uh, all sat in a room and designed a comprehensive, holistic, financial, income tax, estate tax plan, and we all sat in the room together? And I'm sure you could probably guess the answers. Never. Never. Yeah. And I said, but if you're at Goldman Sachs and you're worth a hundred million, that happens on a regular basis. So our vision was to take this, you know, to I guess middle market, where you know, net worth two to fifteen million. Uh, we we partner with a lot of CPAs, a lot of uh, trust and estate attorneys, 
uh, do a lot of work with business owners, affluent individuals, but it's to bring that team of specialists. So about 10 years ago, we said, instead of being the jack of all trades, everybody's going to have a specialty in our firm, and if we don't have it, we're going to go out and hire the specialty. I mean, Ed knows some of the things that you know we've done that are pretty unique in the marketplace that most other wealth management you know guys that don't knock on a lot of them just managing money. They're not doing this holistic planning with Social Security and Medicare supplements and wealth management. So we bring just a team of specialists. And I, it's really resonated, I think, in, in the marketplace, and especially when you're dealing with baby boomers and senior marketplace where most of our clients come from. They want to know that, one, you have a team behind you. Two, you have a built-in succession plan, which, you know, for, again, for the first 20 years of my career, I'm like, well, I need a succession plan. I'm 25, 30 years old. Now I'm 50. So when you're dealing with, you know, 60, 65, 70-year-old, the team is really, I think, refreshing. It resonates with the clients. Know if you know, I get hit by a bus, everything goes on, carries, carries forward. Um, with the team behind us, uh, we use a lot of technology, which is not my area at all, but it certainly helped us where we can bring things together. So the CPA, the attorney, the wealth management guy, the insurance, we can all look at things online so you can get that Goldman Sachs red carpet concierge treatment with a team of specialists. Um, so I think it's pretty unique in the marketplace and that's kind of like the big law firm. You know, everybody's got a specialty. But so together... You, you collect all of this information from all of the people that you work with and their various different business specialties and you say, well, I get a sense that more things are happening. I think maybe it makes sense for me to either scale up my business or, or how do you make that determination? Um, again, let me make sure I, I heard you right. So when we're talking about when we're gathering information, speaking to a client, how do we determine whether we're going to scale up our business or not for that specific client? Not necessarily for that specific client, but for your business itself. So any one of your clients may have needs and you say, fine, we need to devote assets to this particular client. Right. But on, on a broader spectrum, how do you assess when more of that is happening and it's time for me? Well, I think for the business, I, I think, you know, I talked to countless of people with money and when I ask that question again, when's the, you know, it's never. So I think the clients, the consumers, everybody's so busy raising families, running their business, oftentimes their own personal, you know, financial situation, estate plan, you know, insurance, wealth management sometimes takes a back seat and we'll get to it later because it's not as urgent. So, you know, if we can bring that team as part of a team working with the attorneys and the CPAs to, um, I guess, you know, middle, high, higher, middle America, um, it's very refreshing because the, the clients that I've spoken to always, I've been meaning to get to that. I'm sure you, you know, legal profession, trust in the state attorneys, I mean, been meaning to get to it. But what they do want is they want things easier, they want things simpler, they want one-stop shop, they're tired of going to their attorney, their CPA, their insurance guy, and getting four different opinions because none of those guys talk, and then they end up doing nothing. And then something happens and countless stories of, you know, very wealthy people, things go up in smoke. So that was to bring that to the marketplace and meet the demands of the clients, which is one-stop shop, simpler, make my life easier, bring in, bring in a team. Well, we'd like to make our lives easier. Uh, Bob, Bob, I'll, I'll um, comment on one thing David said, which I think he hit on a, a topic that I know that we believe in, uh, especially in looking at growth strategies for maybe more established companies, and that is being different. That um, 
you know, when you're when you're in a more of a mature company that has uh, practiced for a while, whether it's financial planning or in our case engineering, uh, it's very easy to fall into the same trap of doing what everybody else does. And I think what David really hit on is um, being different than your competitors. By br in your case, by bringing all the parties together under one one roof, one envelope, that's not something that's done routinely. And frankly, that's something that we look to do too. My, nothing makes me happier when someone says we're different than all the people that we uh, do business that we uh, do business not with, but what that we're, who we're up against in our in our in our, uh, in our business markets. Can oh, I add some color on mm -hmm. the word? Uh, and this is Karen Cop mm -hmm. from Cop Consulting. I've but the only female voice at the table, so everybody's going to get to know me pretty soon. But um, some color on the, the word different and the concept of being different, because this is what you're talking about, Dave, as well, is that what, what we find out there in the market pretty much across industries is that people like different, but they, what they really want is more value. Mm -hmm. And so how is it that you are of more value than their current solution mm -hmm. and the three other solutions that they know about, and one of them is their cousin Vinny. So how is that? And then what kind of language do you use to express how you are of more value? And that's the difference between, you know, this is in our experience, so it's you saying something and somebody saying, well, that's nice, or you said something and somebody said, really, you do that? When can we meet? Mm -hmm. Or I know somebody you really need to talk to. And one of the ways that we dig at that when we're putting messaging together is a slight uh, a step to the left, Dave, versus what you said before, is that a lot of people do ask their current clients uh, of satisfaction questions. But actually, to dig at this, what we're talking about, it's a different kind of question to dig at. If you ask your, your best clients, your representative A-level clients, what was it, that perfect storm that was going on in your life at the moment you decided you needed to speak with me about doing something different? That's, if you can dig at that and find out what was going on behind the scenes and do that with two or three different representative A-level clients, especially you're talking about this team of people, well, what was it? What happened in your client's life that made that idea seem it's very important that they didn't want to put off a conversation with you at that time. And that language expressed out there in the market will attract more of the same kinds of, of clients. I think before we space. get to that, go ahead, Sunil. I was about to say that. Sunil Goodkin, Medical yeah. Equips. Um, Barry and Karen bring up very, very great points. And, and it is about being different, but it is, it's, it's what's, what's the value in different? Mm -hmm. And um, I think Karen hit the nail on the head there. Sure, anybody can open up and hang a shingle outside and, and claim themselves to be different than the guy next door. But it's what we practice on a daily basis is we listen, we assess, and then we deliver. That is what our mantra is throughout from, from, from me all the way down to the guys in the warehouse and the gals in the warehouse that are picking and packing orders. Um, it's going out to our clients, whether it's a small physician's office or whether it's Princeton Plainsboro Hospital, who's a client of ours, and listening to what their needs are and, and then assessing, okay, I see your, your pressure points and this is how we can help you fix those pressure points. 
And there are companies out there, competitors of ours, that'll listen but drop the ball and do nothing about it because they don't have the tools or the resources to go out to the manufacturers and bring solutions back to their clients. And for a variety of reasons, one of which is, is our relationships with the manufacturers, whether it's uh, Cherokee Scrubs or Welch Allen who makes fantastic diagnostic equipment, our relationships with them allow us to go back to them with information from our clients and say, hey, look, there's a need in the marketplace for this type of product. How can you help me solve their problem? And, and that's really the key, in my, in my opinion, is being able to listen, assess, and then find a solution to their problem. And I think um, a lot of what David was talking about um, is along those same lines, is, is listening to what your clients need. And when you listen to your existing client base, your ability to then not just service that client, but in the whole scheme of things, it's a very small world. And a lot of administrators in hospitals, a lot of physicians, they all know one another in, in their respective fields, whether it's in New Jersey or whether it's in California. They all, at one point or another, um, it, it's five degrees of separation. And when you service that client, at some point, you do it well, you're inherently going to grow. And that's a lot of what we've faced uh, or experienced in the past five, seven years is, is incredible growth because we listen, we assess, and we deliver. And, and at the end of the day, that's what clients want. They want that one-stop shopping. They don't want to have 30 vendors doing 30 different things when they can, they can cut that vendor list down and say, okay, well, instead of dealing with 30 people, I can look Karen in the face and say, hey, look, Karen, this is what I need. Take care of it. And, and that, at the end of the day, that's, that's really what it's about, in my opinion. Oh, Sunil, I think you said that really well. I think it's essentially a summary of what everyone at this table has been doing with their business. I mean, today, and we see this in our business, in the law business as well, and there are a lot of law firms and lawyers who come out and provide a commodity service, and you know, we're a lawyer and we can do this, but the distinction is, is knowing your customer and understanding their business and their market, and you have to sit down at the table with them and deliver value. I mean, any lawyer can put together a contract, but does that contract consider the various different economic factors and what's going on in their marketplace and how you could bring some value? And even from my perspective, even more importantly to that is how do you help them assess the risk of what it is that they're doing with this particular deal or transaction and to bring that value to the table? So I think, Sunil, I think you summarized this part of the discussion Absolutely. really well from where this topic has gone. So let's move on to the next one. And it may be a little bit related and a little bit transitioned, perhaps even to pick up on what Karen talked about in bench strength and, and keeping your employees in your talent available, and how do you go about doing that? So some of it talks about how do you assess your capital needs, and how do you know when it's time to get some more money, and how would you go about doing that? And so we all talked about, all of you at this table today are very successful, and that's why you're winners in, in this Smart CEO 50 award thing, and your businesses are growing. So you're probably at a stage now in in your company. Well, we want to continue to grow, and are we being strained for cash, or how do we go about doing that? 
And what types of things are you doing in the marketplace to help you with that? And it may be somewhat of a short-lived discussion if everybody has, you know, we're all doing the same thing. and may not, but I toss that out there, whoever wants to give some insight into what they're doing now. And the exact question is? I'm sorry. The, uh, the exact question is, <laughs> how do you assess your capital needs for growth, and how do you go about raising that capital? Got it. Uh, uh, you like the lead off. I like the lead off. You know, it's, uh, we're going counterclockwise. <laughs> that way, if I if I if I misspeak, everyone everyone else can correct me. We can me. cover you up. That's later. right. We got you. Um, th I think that's a great question, and as a, a small to medium sized company, it's a challenge that that um, if everyone around the table hasn't faced it, you will face it. Um, I know from our standpoint, what we did this year, which for the first time ever, is we put together a five year strategic plan. Uh, in previous years, we had done one year, maybe a two-year. Being a small, medium-sized company, we all know it's very difficult to predict what's going to happen uh, more than a year or two out uh, for a variety of reasons. But we put together a five-year plan that dissected our business, put together a growth strategy, put together staffing needs, capital needs. Um, and that was very difficult to do. It took, us, it took me about six months to put together. But that was really the start. What we did with that is we then went to our banker and we presented it to them and shared it with them to give them a heads up that these are the things that we're looking to do, maybe not tomorrow, but maybe 12 months, 24 months, 36 months out. This is what we're going to need. We want to prepare you so that you can work with us to make it available. We're not interested in uh, seeking capital from outside sources. That's not on our business model. We're a privately held company, closely held. We want to continue to be that way. Um, so that, that, that's, that's what we did, to, to be a little bit proactive instead of reactive. So this is an early part for you doing this, mm -hmm. but I, I guess as, as you go along, I guess you look at what's now happening in two years, how do we go back to where we started in one year, are we consistent with what we thought our projections would be and yep. as a market? Yes. Yeah. Um, it, what, what the other thing that we did is we put together what I call a scorecard, mm -hmm. that we uh, at every step in the process, we have key uh, key milestones that we want to achieve, and we're tracking. But it's not just tracking; it's adapting, because five nobody can predict what's going to happen five years out. So it's a matter of looking at that plan, whether whether it's once a week, once a month, once a quarter, and adapting it and changing it to the business needs today. Thanks. Karen? So this is Karen Kopp, Kopp Consulting, and we're in the service business, and it's really we're selling time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not a big fan of debt, don't love it, have to have it <laughs> <laughs> periodically. So uh, we have had a, a line of credit, which, uh, you know, I guess maybe six months ago, we needed to increase the line of credit, and we use that only for periods of time when we can foresee that we need it. When is that? Uh, the end of the year, of course, as an LLC, and then uh, periods of time where our clients, for whatever reason, can't pay. And I don't know if everybody else is experiencing this, uh, but over the last year, I've seen our clients uh, butcher our terms, mm -hmm. and not in the agreement phase either. They agree to everything, and then they do whatever the heck they want. And uh, it, so for those unforeseen times, we do rely on, on the, the line of credit. What we've tried to do over many years is manage this cash, cash flow issue with our terms. 
So we have a, a deposit that we require up front. It's like a security deposit that mm -hmm. gets applied to the last month. Um, that smooths things out often. Um, so we've done that. We've played over the years with uh, billing in arrears and then billing ahead to try to see. We have since gone back to billing in arrears with the, the security deposit. Um, that seems to be the way to go and, and the line. But if anybody has been dealing with this whole idea of the uh, clients just deciding when they'd like to pay, um, you know, whether it's 15, 30 days, 45 days, 60 days, whenever, uh, and has come up with a better solution, I would love to hear that. So do you have clients who, who come to you, and, and you might have been initially a couple of years ago on a 30-day billing cycle, and say, well, you know, we now process bills on an automated system, and we're going to put you out to 60 days or 90 days. Uh, so that's one of the things we've been seeing over some years. And then the other thing that we see from certain kinds of clients that they're looking for discounts on discounted rates. So that, yeah, and we wrestle with this as well. And to some extent, you're, we're willing to do that, but it, we're willing to do discounted rates to the extent that you're willing to commit to volume. And so I don't know if you are seeing that, and it does affect how you're looking for your capital, and it does impact upon the line of credit. And, and as you see, in many companies towards the end of the year, particularly pastor entities like you know, COP Consulting as an LLC, you have some cash flow issues towards the end of the year. So that definitely has an assessment on what your more immediate capital needs are. And what the Barry's point earlier at, at his engineering firm, on a going forward basis, you're looking to maybe ramp up some growth. And we may see that in the next couple of years, we need to start adding more engineers. And we may need to open a South Jersey office. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, kind of gets into our sense about on the five-year plan, what do our capital needs look like? So to, to continue that discussion, and Sunil, what do you think? Sunil Gupta, medically equipped. Um, at, at any given time, uh, we have several million dollars of inventory on our shelves, ready to ship. Um, and we have several hospital chains that are terrible payers. Um, we have agreed in contracts to 90-day terms for them uh, because of in exchange for the volume. They often, in, at will, increase that those 90 days to 180 <laughs> plus. Um, th there was one point I, I remember many years ago. There was a a hospital chain that was expanding and and we were basically financing their expansion because they weren't paying our bills to the tune of about two and a half to three million dollars that we were carrying for about a, about eleven and a half months when when i finally said listen i've lost enough sleep over this you're not getting another scrub or a box of gloves until all of the arrears are paid and and sometimes as much as it may hurt you have to put your foot down and say i'm cutting you off Go somewhere else, try to find the service that we provide, and 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 good luck. But at some point, you've got to cut off that 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 line. And and thankfully, since then, since I put my foot down with that particular client, they they've kind of stuck plus or minus a month or so to the original terms of the contract. But the, the way we finance our growth is. Like Barry, we're a privately held company, and I, I want to keep it that way. Um, we have a line of credit. We have a great relationship. We've been with the same bank um, for about 12, 
13 years now, 12 or 13 years. And, and it's, we have a great relationship. All of our credit card, they do our credit card processing, um, which, which helps. Um, and, and so because of that relationship, we're able to increase. And again, over the past five years, we've had to go back to them several times and request increases because we've got to fuel that growth. Um, thankfully, we're, we've been in a position where every, every 30 to 60 days we're able to, just to pay off that, that line um, where it's down to nothing. And then during certain peak seasons of the year, end of the year, we've got to dip into it because a lot of our clients have to spend out their budgets and they're placing larger POs with us towards November, at, pretty much after Thanksgiving. Uh, end of November, December, um, and, and so we've got to dip into those lines uh, in order to, to fuel those purchase orders. Do you Maybe mind if I ask Sunil a question? A follow-up sure. question on something you said that's interesting to me. Um, when it comes to making the decision of when to cut them off, mm -hmm. right? I've had clients who promise, promise, promise to pay, and they, they do. They're just going through a difficult cash time and what we do fuels their growth, and it's vital. So, I, uh, but I've also had the other experience where people promise, 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 and in the end, they just don't have the cash mm -hmm. uh, to do it, and their sales cycles are long, so you know, it takes a while to close the sale. So the question is, how, when you were in that same situation, how did you analyze the situation and make a decision, okay, it's time to cut the cord, and that's it, which also cuts you off from sure. providing products and services to your clients. Well, in, in, in that particular case, and, and, in, and in all of my cases, actually, I have relationships with the executives at, at, mm -hmm. our, at our clients. And so it, a lot of it is a relationship business. I mean, it's, it's yeah, we're providing goods, but at the end of the day, it's, it's a relationship that, that we've strengthened over a number of years. And... Um, it just, I found myself losing a tremendous amount of sleep. I don't get much sleep as it is. Um, and, and I found myself for, for months on end just not getting enough sleep over, over something like this. Well, in your case particularly, you're carrying a large inventory of product. Right. That you basically have to stock and pay for and Correct. just maintain that inventory. Correct. That's carrying a significant cost. It's, it's a tremendous amount of cost. Um, and, and, but to answer your question, a lot of it is relationship, and, and it was a matter of me picking up the phone um, at one point because we have my, you know, my account, accounting department will make those requests. Okay, this is past due. This is past due. But at some point, at, at some point, it got to my desk, and, and and you just have to. I picked up the phone and I said, "Listen, Jay, this is what's outstanding. I, I I'm I'm very happy for your growth. I appreciate it." But we're at 11 and a half months at this point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 11 and a half months, and, and we're close to $2.7 million that we're carrying. It's a tremendous amount of money. And we need to sit down and figure out a payment schedule. Because I need to get paid on those previous invoices. A couple thousand dollars, no, no problem. Okay, everyone goes through growth phases and, and long sales cycles. I, I, I understand that, I'm appreciative of it, and I respect that. And we want to work with clients, just like you. You, you, you don't want to cut somebody off right. the, the, the first invoice that they're late. But if it becomes habitual, yeah. it's, 
we've walked away and closed the door on on physicians' offices in particular that have simply ignored requests. But as long as there's communication, and okay, yes, we promise to pay. This is the plan I'm setting forth. As long as there's that communication, then no problem. Yeah. Um, and and within within about 45 days, 60 days, they paid the two and 2.7 million because it was a conversation and and that was it. He said, okay, I'll give you I'll give you a million and a half within 30 days, and I'll give you the balance by this date and he was a couple weeks early a great fantastic and and but it but it I don't know if I answered your question but it really comes down to the relationship you have with the client and how receptive they are because some some clients don't want to face those bills yeah they just they just want to delete the invoice or just file it away. It's not in my system. Right, right. Or file it away. Never received it or the yeah. checks in the mail. Yeah. And, the other and, part of that is, I mean, and that goes down to a lot of the points. There's a common theme that's been going through this discussion pretty much all morning so far is it's really important to know your customer and understand their business, but even more important to know the personalities that are involved and the decision makers that you're talking about. So, so in that respect, I mean, Sunil, you, you know, you're effectively operating as the bank to this guy. Mm -hmm. And at some point, you got to come back and say, hey, look, you know, if that's what we're going to be talking about, maybe you should be paying us 18% interest because we're in the market and have to operate as a bank. Yeah, good luck collecting that. But, uh, <laughs> but, you know, it kind of gets people's attention, though. Yeah. And, that's Les, I think you wanted to make a point. Yeah, I wanted to add to that. This is Les Williams from X to Networks. And uh, I, I want to take a different um, look at it because um, – in uh, Sunil's case, he has inventory, and it's like livestock that gets moved into hospitals, and their payment mechanism is a little different. And his um, capital, his need for capital infusion into his business might be contingent upon those customers, um, you know, being good on their on their debts and everything. I think the same thing goes for yourself. Um, with us, in a service business, for the most part, you know, you get to bill in advance. So um, our challenge is not so much so based on the customers, um, you know, remitting their money. We do provide some professional services, and when we do, you are able to collect at least a 50% deposit. I think you do something similar. Unless you want to trade? <laughs> no, no, we do have those challenges, trust me. Um, we do, we, we do, we do. But I mean, um, and not to rub it in, but uh, I, I, I think... Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, but uh, the challenge for us really is um, a skill, and we too are a privately held company like you, Barry, and you, Sunil. And um, we are very mindful of our line of credit as well. But I think our need for capital um, goes closely with that scalability conversation we had before. Mm -hmm. And if I were to go back to where we left, we spoke about the differentiation, we spoke about the value to the customer. And um, Sonelia in particular mentioned listen, access, and deliver. And uh, for us, I think we take that product element very seriously because that's the only time you can be able to deliver on the feedback that you're getting from the customer. And as a part of that product lifecycle management or that product development process, you do not only solicit what the customer gives to your front, but you go back and verify and making sure that what you provide into the market mm -hmm. is what they're looking for and is commercially viable. That, if you take it back to what we're talking about now in terms of capital and everything, we look at that closely, and we look at the capital needs when we have to bring to market new products, 
on new pieces that meets market requirement. And to do that, we have to stress test that that product is commercially viable, and we look closely at the ROI. How soon can we? Do we have the customers that are ready to get on? Do we have better customers? Is this meeting a need and everything? When we know we have all of that in place, then we see if you know it's something we can do with what we have, our facilities that we have already. If not, we know we have um, the need for additional capital. So, again, not to trivialize the conversation we are having before, by no means I do have those challenges <laughs> as well with the customers, um, but um, our need for capital infusement usually stems around that scalability, that growth in terms of expanding new products, new markets, and uh, uh, infrastructure development. And we pay close attention to what the commercial viability of that would be, tying back to the part of conversation earlier, to see that it's a viable spend. Okay. Thanks, Wes. I mean, Sunil, good to hear medically equipped. Um, just, to, just to interject, but um, thankfully, years ago I learned that you can't, you can't put all your eggs in one basket and one, when I say that, I mean we can't always just go after the institutional clients uh, because you get into a deeper and deeper hole. So a long time ago, we, we developed the dot-com. And, and we developed our website, and that, more often than not, fuels those individual sales from individual nurses or individual doctors logging on and saying, I want one pair of scrubs or, or, or these, this pair of nursing shoes. Those individual purchases, which are made by credit cards, a lot of times fuels the larger institutional POs that come down uh, the pipe on a weekly and monthly basis. Um, and and so I'm, I'm fortunate in that sense, but we still have those um, those large POs that come in where even though we're shipping a thousand orders a, a day, um, that still doesn't necessarily help when when we've got those really large monthly sure. POs coming down from hospitals. So uh, this is a Barry School Street from Whitman, and I really want to uh, hit on something Karen said, and that is when. You know, when do you make that choice to um, cut a client off? Uh, and I look at it. Um, I'm, I'm I'm a Libra, so I'm very balanced. <laughs> All right. Uh, clients always demand that we execute, uh, that we follow through. Uh, what Sunil said, I think, is uh, he hit a, he he hit on it. Where getting a client to make a commitment, and when they if they don't follow through, that's your point. If they do, when they do follow through, perfect. That's really, in, in my experience, that that's really the the, the defining line. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. And and you got to look at their previous history. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. I was saying before, if they're late on invoice one, and consistently late, yeah. then you know you've you've got to handle it with kid gloves, and you've got to be careful um, as to the next step that your company takes. But historically, if they've if they've paid plus or minus 10 or 15 days, um, and, and they've historically paid, and they're going through that growth phase, where, where which was the example in, in my instance, where the hospital was building. They were building out new buildings, which at the end, at the end of the day just meant more business for me down the road. But, but I still had to, I, I looked at, you know, what their history was, where they're going, and how to, how to resolve the immediate problem without poisoning the relationship. Well, and, and this is Barry again. So, you know, I think what you did is you did it in a very respectful way. 
very professional way. And I think that's also the key. And sometimes when you push back, you gain a lot of respect. And I think that's probably what happened in your situation. You guys, I mean, because I, I agree with everything they're saying, um, and every client's different and taking time to get to know your client. But I know... Um, so this is Dave? Dave Buckwald, sorry. Um, one of the things we've tried to do, because you know, every once in a while you're going to get a difficult client, and sometimes, you know, letting them go or firing a difficult client is pretty exhilarating at times. It is. Um, especially when they're disrespectful to our staff or any team member. Um, we kind of have that rules of engagement. Uh, but initially, I think we're most, um, I guess, relationships break down with clients is on some level um, the expectations were not met, either the service you provided or their response in becoming a client or paying on time. So what we try to do to at least minimize these is, up front, we have what's called upfront contracts. Mm -hmm. So at this stage of our career, you know, we take on certain clients, and some clients are certainly not a fit for us. Right. You know, if you're going to call me every single day and you know want to discuss everything that's going on in the market and 800 stocks a day, we're probably not a good fit for you. But we'll know that up front, and we ask our clients, you know, tell me about it, you know the ideal relationship to have with a financial advisor, and, and let them tell us. And then we have kind of a fee, and we have a service deliverable. Uh, from our team members. So we try and set these expectations right up front, uh, what we will do, what our team will provide, this is the cost, this is the levers, levels of service you will get. Um, and a lot of times clients are just like, wow, you know, we've never seen that before. We, wow, it's a lot more service than we've ever gotten before. Uh, but then we said for that, you know, we expect certain things from you as well. Yeah. Pay on time, you know, return our phone calls within 24 hours, be respectful of our staff. So. I think you can minimize a lot of that up front, but obviously every scenario, is, every client's different. But that's worked fairly well, and you know, unfortunately we didn't adopt it 25 years ago. It's within the last five years we've adopted it, but it seems to help. So th thanks, Dave. I think to try to keep a little bit on this program, and, and I'll come back to you in a second, but I wanted to summarize where we are. So I, I'm not sure we're going to get through all of the topics. but So essentially right now we're talking about most of you are privately held companies. And it seems to be the assessment of your capital needs is really by staying close to your customers and your clients and trying to assess what they're doing in the marketplace. And then based upon what information you get from them, it looks like most of you are either relying on whatever internal capital that you have stored up or at least going into the financial institution marketplace and relying on lines of credit. So right now at this table, no one is looking to go in the marketplace to raise you know, third-party capital financing as investments. So I think that that seems to be that consensus. And, you know, and I'm, I'm not sure if, Brian, you wanted to make one more comment before we go on. No, that's fine. We can move along. That's fine. Okay. So where we are now is we talked about how you assess your needs going forward. What do you do about raising capital? And I think we're about to go on to the third topic. So, again, this is Bob Gabrowski, the moderator, and, and what we're looking for now is how do you ensure that your employees stay engaged in and adapt to these plans and operations that you've developed, and how do you incorporate their feedback into those plans, and perhaps even a corollary to that, which goes on to the next question, but I think we can embed those two parts together. What do you do to get that participation of your employees in your company? Is it in terms of giving out equity or options or phantom stock. So to recap that question again, 
we're talking about the third issue that's come up or the third thing we're looking for input at this round table. Is how do you ensure your employees stay engaged in and adapt to the operations of your business? And how do you incorporate their feedback into the changes that you look to make and make going forward? And then the last part to that is how might you reward those employees for what it is that they do, and particularly if they're key employees? So I'll throw that one out there again. And uh, yeah, uh, this is Brian Sullivan. It, Brian. Uh, I'll start this uh, this question off. Uh, so what we do, uh, we do quite a few things to try and keep the employees engaged, our team members engaged. Uh, we have an annual retreat every year uh, where we talk about the vision of the company. Um, it may seem funny, but uh, when we started the company, we had a 40-year vision for where we wanted the company to be 40 years down the road. Uh, we share that with the team. We also share what the 10-year vision is, the three-year, and the one-year plan. So is the 40-year part of your retirement plan? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's, that's somebody else's problem, the 40-year. I just painted the picture. Um, and then we have monthly meetings every month to revisit where we are on that, uh, where we look, how we look towards the annual goal, how we look towards that three-year goal. Um, we get... Uh, almost like a roundtable topic where we get input from everyone to see you know, what we can improve upon. Uh, we do something every year called Blue Sky Thinking where we get input from everybody on the team. They have to bring at least five items to the table that we can improve on, that we can do better, that we can do different. The help goal uh, seems to help with the engagement. We celebrate our wins. Every week we send out an email with uh, any new project that we uh, received. We talk a little bit about the client, the project. More importantly, we talk about who it was in the office that landed that project, what they did that helped uh, successfully bring that client in the door. Um, we're very, very focused on improving the quality of life of our team members. We have a recommended reading list uh, that started out with a list of books that I really liked that are more on personal growth rather than professional. That list was 20 from input from our team. That list is about 60 books now uh, that we have a little library in the office. Anybody can take it, keep it. That book is theirs. Uh, they just have to promise to read it, uh, and then they get to keep that book. Uh, we also, similar to uh, Dave, we have the, uh, the what if I'm hit by the bus meetings, the continuity planning. Um, it helps people know that you know if I am hit by a bus, if something, some tragedy should befall me, that the company will go on. Uh, if one of our, we lose a major client, what do we do? How do we keep the, the business uh, moving forward? Um, and then there's the standard team building events where we all go out golfing. We have the bring your kids to work day type of events. Uh, all, all sorts of you know dinners at night with the family, with the spouses, the significant others, to try and keep the conversations going and get to know each other on a more personal basis. So you're a little bit different in the business because in an engineering business, you may at some point bring on your people as partner owners. I mean, is that something that you contemplate, or where are you with those kinds of things now? We are. That is something we're contemplating, trying to figure out how to do that correctly. Is a little something that, to be honest, I'm naive at. Uh, so uh, learning more about that, we're very actively engaging. Uh, with some consultants that specialize in that to kind of learn what the best way to do that is, what the potential pitfalls are on the different options that are out there. Like you said before, phantom stock or straight partnership. Um, being an engineering firm, it's a little bit difficult. If they are a partner, they have to be a licensed engineer. Correct. Um, so how do you allow people that have this skill set, the ability, the knowledge, they're just not a licensed engineer, how do you allow them to have that ownership? So we're working through that uh, currently. Uh, this is Barry Skolch. Brian, having been through uh, one transition myself and planning the next transition, uh, maybe offline, I can give you some thoughts. Beautiful. Because um, there are some ways to get around the engineering issue. <laughs> i just tell you, one of the things that we do um, and we advise a lot of business owners on is, you know, most organizations have two, three key people. Um, you know, if you set up some type of qualified retirement plan with a 401k, obviously you got to include everybody. Mm -hmm. 
but most businesses have you know two three people that like you know I can't lose these guys. So we set up a lot of these what's called selective executive retirement plans, uh, where you can discriminate. Yep. You can take care of your three four employees, and you basically use it as almost a golden handcuffs type of deal, where hey this pot of gold is waiting for you five ten fifteen twenty years down the road. But in order to get it, we're going to put away. We're going to fund it. It's not one of these unfunded liabilities, which is just a promise to pay. You know, it's a little more secure for the employee that we're going to give this to you, assuming you stay loyal to me for the next 10, 15 years. So the distinction of, of what Dave is speaking about with his company right now, I guess we're talking about something that would likely be in the long run taxed as a compensation element versus something that might become an ownership element that when there's a sale or a retirement that you might be able to achieve capital gains. But there's a lot of different ways about going it, and I think that the beauty of this discussion is there are people with different sized companies and different kinds of industries. I think this input is, is very valuable on the podcast, particularly to those who are listening to it at some point going forward. Sunil, go ahead. Sunil, good commendably equipped. Um, one of the ways, well, we have weekly sales and management meetings to go over what was done in the prior week, what we've got in the pipeline, and what our targets are for the upcoming week or month. Um, once a month, we have a meeting with the entire company, everybody from uh, from the picker packers to the people that uh, and, and people that sweep the floors, all the way up to me. We've found, or I've found, that some of the best ideas come from the boots on the ground. The guys that and guys and gals that are picking and packing orders, how to make us more efficient, how to make us better, where to cut costs. Um, and ultimately affect the bottom line. So some of the best ideas, and I tell my people this on a regular basis, and I think they're kind of sick and tired of hearing about it, but give me 100 ideas. 99 of them probably are terrible. But that one idea that you give me could revolutionize the way we do things. And it's happened more times than I can count in, 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 the, in the past 16 years. It's happened more times than I can count where the smallest little change has come from from right, totally right field. Had no idea that this person could actually think outside the box and beyond their daily duties. And it was it's remarkable. Um, so and, and we too we have we have our quarterly get-togethers where where the entire company spouses children uh, depending on the time of the year. We just had a ski trip um, where. Every, all of us, we all, and, and the spouses and kids, we, we bought lift tickets and tube tickets, and, and we all got together and just for an entire weekend just hung out. Um, and I think that's important so that each and every member of the team gets to know one another, gets to know their strengths, gets to know their weaknesses. Um, and, and so it's important. We've been doing it for the past three years, and it's really helped the cohesiveness of the company. Um, we also offer commissions. So, when 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 we hire someone, um, I tell them, "Listen, you are a direct reflection of me. Whether you're on the clock or off the clock, you are a direct reflection of me. Don't let me see. Don't let my because because IT will will monitor um, Facebook pages and and things like that and." Don't let me see ridiculous posts and pictures of you on Facebook because you're a direct reflection of me and this company. And so 
when when they do go out and make sales, because we've gotten sales from, again, a picker and a packer who knew, uh, who who went to their denti- dentist's office or who went to their physician and made that sale. She opened the door for us um, a number of times that's happened. And so they will get a recurring commission rate on every single sale that that office purchases. So that's one way to keep keep my people engaged and, and always to keep your eyes and ears open for a potential lead. So Sunil from Medically Equipped, you're, you're doing some really good team building things and you're doing some direct impact compensation with respect to sales Absolutely. that people are making. Are you doing anything where people were participating in the growth of your company that might be different from that? Perhaps in some kind of phantom or other kind of... Uh, currently, no. Okay. Currently, we're not. I mean, they, the people that want to participate, participate in the 401k and yep. get matched to a certain percentage, right. but above and beyond the, the commission and uh, the, the retirement plan that we have, unfortunately, we don't have... A, a path to ownership of the company just yet. It's no, not something fine. I've looked into. We're just trying to yep. assess where each of you is in, in the marketplace. Yeah, um, uh, this is less than some extra networks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think um, we, we follow a common theme, you know, the yearly, the quarterly, and everything. Um, I think one thing that's a little different that we do is um, the way we're structured and the way we solicit in- engagement or input from our, um, from our employees. We do a lot of skip levels, um, skip level um, engagements. So um, uh, people that are a few tiers down the, the rung still get access all the way through to the top of the company. Um, we have about um, 620 people now on our um, on our payroll, and we have a, a five tower building in a high tech city in Hyderabad. I just got back um, last Wednesday from there, and while I was there. A good part of my time was just um, sitting with each one and of the the people that are down the line. You know, it, it takes a lot. It takes some challenges. Sometimes you can be able to do it in the office, where you can bring them in for 15 minutes chats and everything, and they tell you about what they've done well. What, and uh, we always ask, "How am I doing? How? What can I do better?" And um, put them at ease to say that it's not. It's you're not going to be penalized for this, but it just helps us make a better business overall. That um, uh, elicits a strong sense of emotion from them and a sense of um, attachment to the business and knowing that they are valued, that they are being listened to, and that they are participating in that. And most of the other executives do the same thing. Um, we leverage a lot of um, all these collaborative tools by way of um, daily engagement. So I use Skype, I use uh, WebEx, um, you know, and sometimes even that which they may bring to the table that is convenient for them so that they are able to stay engaged, they are able to ping you and be able to talk to you. So um, that skip level, that open accessibility has been a really good tool for us to get everybody's input in. Like, for instance, one of my social media guys that I was uh, with the other day, um, as, uh, as predatory or as um, uh, funny as it may be, because like, why don't we go look at all our um, competitor sites? They list all their customers there, and we can go poach them. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's a good idea, but I don't know that's, <laughs> that's the right way to do it. But that's something that I haven't thought about. But, I mean, it's not like we will go and play dirty. But yep. he had this idea, and he had other things. So we, we always open the door for that. By way of, um, uh, you know, a stake in the company, we are still evaluating that similar to what... Uh, 
you guys are doing, Brian, but there is a 401k plan. Mm -hmm. And um, there, we also focus heavily on instant gratification. So um, in addition to commission for our sales team, other folks get to have bonuses. And those bonuses are based on KPIs or uh, and, um, MBOs. Give them objective, mm -hmm. we sit down on a quarter, what do you want to do? Where do you see yourself in five years? How do you want to go in the company? Um, you know, let's set goals, let's set objectives, and align it with the rest of the company's things. And if you do it, you excel. You make your your bonus, so you can make up, you know, extra based on accelerators. So that too gets them really vested, particularly in the short term. Also, we look to see what are their key skills. What are they passionate about? Um, I have a content writer. Um, he, you know, he has an MBA in English and all of that, and he's been doing very well in terms of content development and everything. Lately, he came and said, "Okay, I'm going to law school." I'm like, "Okay, so um, this is a little bit uh, crazy. How is that going to benefit us?" But then we looked at it and see, well, you know, if that's what you're passionate about and that's what you want to do, who knows? Maybe after law school, you can come back and you know work in our contracts department and everything, and created a path for him where he's able to go to school at the same time, being able to deliver on what he's doing and beginning to look for ways that we can shape his talent to the benefit of him and the company. So we use all those different things just to you know, get them engaged, get them to buy in on our vision, and get them to stay rewarded and motivated. So I think that's also a significant investment in your employees. So I think with that kind of investment, you gender more loyalty and more participation, and there's a mindset that people want to contribute. Correct. And I think that's important. Ed Wilkin? Yeah, I just wanted to uh, comment briefly on some of the things that we do. Um, as you know, uh, I'm an owner of a CPA firm, and uh, yeah, the CPA business is pretty much 110% full employment, and our people are constantly bombarded with offers that any one of them could go somewhere else and make $15,000, $20,000 more a year and probably work less. So uh, it's very important to us to have our, our staff engaged and uh, involved in the process. Uh, every one of our uh, our employees have coaches, personal coaches that uh, they're able to uh, meet with. Uh, goals are set annually for each of the uh, of the employees and they're evaluated. Uh, we had had annual evalu evaluations and they're very cumbersome. They all come at the wrong time, of course. <laughs> so we've, we've developed a now a process of instant uh, instant feedback so a, and uh, staffers can request at any time a uh, feedback on an engagement they've worked on as to how they uh, how they did. Um, we have six, 360 evaluations so not only are we evaluating down but they're evaluating up. Uh, that's always interesting. <laughs> uh, we have committees um, from down to the, uh, the one and two year people um, to uh, you know, we more established staff, and uh, they report to the managing partner on a, on a regular basis as the ideas they come up with. Um, we've, on a very consistent basis over the last 10 years, as a firm, gone into the uh, best places to work uh, concept, and what it does is it rallies all the employees uh, around you, and uh, at the end, if you do well, it's a... Uh, it's not only a reflection on the firm, but it's a reflection on each one of the people. Uh, we do a lot of the theme events. Uh, we just had a, I don't know, a chocolate cake day. Thank God it wasn't in the office. I was in the New York office, so I didn't have to stare at that chocolate cake. 
Um, and we, we have determined that every one of our employees, um, as Sunel has, uh, has said, are, are potential business developers. And we do business development training right down to the, uh, the entry-level person to, to uh, you know, what do you do when you meet somebody? How do you, how do you react? How do you uh, get that to uh, a close? Because we all know you go to these card exchanges and you collect cards and at the end of the week you have 52 cards and don't know what to do with it. So uh, that's some of the ideas that we them. use. <laughs> <laughs> so a couple things. We're kind of well past bumping up against time, but if anybody wants to contribute a little more thoughts or what they think they might be doing, I think we can have some time for that and then start to wrap up. I have a, a couple thoughts to add. Karen Kopp from Kopp Consulting. Um, I don't want to repeat anything that anybody has said, so I'll just contribute on top of that. Um, one of the things that we did this past year is we asked everybody, what should we stop doing? Because as the company grows and everybody is kind of involved in developing new processes, and I don't always know about them, we had people say, what should we stop doing? And I found out by asking those questions that there were some redundancies that I didn't know about in the back office area. And I found that very helpful. Uh, also, with our kind of group, they just want, they want continuity. Our people want continuity. They love it when the client continues for a long time. They can see the client grow. Uh, one of our, our door openers got, uh, it was an advertising agency, got them in uh, to participate in RFP that had been closed. And this was after they closed the RFP. She got them in the door and they just won that, and it was a $1.5 million RFP. And they, they love that kind of thing. And so in, in terms of enabling them to stay with one client for a really long time, the client has to be closing sales constantly. How do they do that? Well, we provide them guidance after the meeting on how do you deepen that relationship, get through those proposals, and get to the close. And um, within that, as, as Sunil said, sometimes it's a small tweak or change to something that someone's already doing that will all of a sudden explode their growth. And by being able to provide that insight to the clients, they help them. But then we have, we have a, a, a Yammer, which is a way for everybody to share different techniques that they, they know about, uh, something that might have worked really well, and they'll post it on Yammer so everybody else can see it. Periodically, we'll get a bunch of people on the phone and just share tips of different things. How do you get in the door? How, how do you um, encourage a silent prospect to, uh, to start talking to you again? The different, different kinds of topics and different ideas from a variety of people. And sometimes just one small thing is like, ah, oh, didn't think of that. And all of a sudden, it creates success for, for other people. Um, one time, we took our messaging team and we had a virtual happy hour because we are a virtual company. So at a certain time, I think it was like 4.30 on a Friday. Never heard that one before. Yeah, I was in the car, so I couldn't have a drink. But, uh, but they were all you know, in their home offices, and they shut off their computers, and they each got a drink. And so they you know, said what they were drinking. And we just had you know, a really nice chat, which is something that it wasn't business. It was just a chat, which is something that we don't get to do as a virtual company. And it really... Uh, brought their relationships to a different level. Well, I, I think since we're bumping up against time and maybe past time already, but to summarize what we've talked about here, uh, at least on the third and into the fourth topic, 
what we're getting as a sense is all of the companies here provide ways where people can engage and have dialogue both upstream and downstream with the management and, and all the way down to the staff level. And there are some methods where companies are providing direct or instant gratification in connection with leads and developing business and some forms of commission structure. It seems like all of you have some form of type of uh, 401k or otherwise other retirement plan in place. And I think one of the things that we see even in our business as well as Wilkin and Gutton Plan is all of you have a sense of team building and you do it in a number of different ways and it makes people feel like they're engaged in, in your process. Everybody gets to know what each other is doing in the business because they're not all doing the same things at the same times or locations. So I think, I think that's a good summary of where we are in, in that question. And, and looks like we're at a good time to close. So this concludes the, our Think Tank discussion today. And on behalf of Smart CEO and, and Norris McLaughlin and Marcus, thank all of you for coming and participating today and providing your valuable insight. And wish you all the best. And I look forward to catching up with you both after this and at the rewards party. So. Again, uh, Bob Gabrielski, we're signing out now. Thank you.